Good morning. Good morning. That was a little loud. I will be reading uh, this morning the Word of God from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. It reads as, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself in our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is a law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might take the two into one new man, excuse me, make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. May the Lord add a reading, add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Well, thank you, Zach, Becca, and Claire. That opening intro of the cello into the deep, deep love of Jesus was glorious. So that was exactly the right note to begin on. Would you join me, please, in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the Bradford pears, bright in bloom, and the harbinger of spring will soon be arriving. A beautiful picture of the resurrection, that after a long period of languishing dead <laughs> under the earth, that there comes new life. And that's the power of the gospel, not to deliver us from death, but through death. That having been identified with Christ by grace through faith, we are identified with his death and his resurrection so that though when we die, we will be in a grave as he was, like him we will rise, never to die again, but to live with him in glory forever and ever. So we thank you for that hope that we are reminded of all around us this spring season. We pray for those who are away, for those in our midst who are on mission trips overseas in Romania, in Philadelphia, in Colombia, perhaps elsewhere. We pray for those who are traveling. We pray for those who are ill. Lord, we pray for those around the globe that are uh, afflicted with this new virus or anxious about this new virus or quarantined because of this new virus and pray in your mercy that you would uh, bring quick deliverance, identify a quick cure and vaccine, and that you would use this reminder of our mortality to make people consider their eternal estate, that all of our bodies will die but our souls remain forever, either with you or apart. And our destination depends on our response to Jesus Christ and his offer of salvation. So Lord, would you use this to strengthen your church and to spread your gospel. And now be with us as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, as of Friday, there were 164 possible cases of the coronavirus in the United States, according to the CDC, and according to the World Health Organization, more than 98,000 confirmed cases around the world. Uh, there's been a run on gas, or not gas masks, but face masks, on gloves, on Purell. Bottles of Purell are selling for $150 or more on eBay. Um, there's likewise a run on other items that people are desperately seeking. Anxieties are high. And because this particular virus originated in China, people of Asian heritage are sometimes suspect to a special suspicion or nervousness around them. This is certainly the case on the Baylor campus where my daughter is, and she lives in the international dorm. And so a number of the students there have felt that people don't treat them the same as they used to. Not their fault, they've not been traveling, but people now distance themselves from them. And it became such an issue that the chapel this last Tuesday the speaker cautioned the students that even though there might be a medical necessity for a physical quarantine, among Christians there is never a spiritual quarantine. And he urged them to be especially bright in their smiles and broad in their hugs and encouraging with their words to those uh, from Asia who may have family members or friends who are susceptible, who are more at risk than we are here. And it was a great reminder that Christianity is not an exclusionary religion that there is a broadness to God's love that is to be manifested among God's people. There is an expansiveness to Christ's love that is to be embraced by Christ's disciples. There's an inclusiveness to Jesus' grace and love that is to be imitated by his followers. And it's this idea of the expansive, inclusive, deep, deep love of Jesus that's the theme of our text this morning, beginning in Mark 7, verse 24. Now, the context of this passage is especially important because it really begins back in verse 1 when Jesus is being confronted by the scribes and Pharisees over the issue of ceremonial, ceremonial cleanliness. Jesus' disciples were not following the traditions of the elders by washing their hands and following other traditions. And so he was being rebuked as their rabbi, as their teacher. And Jesus uses the occasion to talk about where true cleanliness and uncleanliness lies not in the externalities and superficialities of religion that leads to legalism, self-righteousness, and hypocrisy, but it's a matter of the heart and of sinful hearts that are made pure and righteous through the rebirth that God gives through Christ when He gives the Holy Spirit within us. And then Jesus talked to them about the heart of man that God truly cares about, and He declared all foods clean. And we heard Ian give a celebratory, yay! But this has less to do with enjoying God's creation than it has to do with breaking down barriers between groups that have been separated. That according to the Mosaic Law, there was a time when Jew and Gentile were separated. And part of that separation was indicated by the different dietary codes that kept them distinct from one another. But with the coming of the new commandment and with the new covenant that Christ would establish in His blood, those barriers are knocked down. And the passage that Fred read he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall of the law contained in ordinances and commandments that kept Jew and Gentile apart so that he could unite them into one new person and reconcile them as one body to God. And those who were far away are brought near. And those who were not citizens are now citizens. And those who were excluded are now adopted. And those who are apart are now part of one holy temple of God. And it's this inclusiveness of the gospel to bring in the Gentiles, to unite them in Christ in one church, that's the theme of Mark 7, 24, all the way through 8:10. Now, this is a big chunk of text that has three different episodes 
that are familiar by now. Jesus is going to cast out a demon as he's done. Jesus is going to heal someone who's disabled as he's done. Jesus is going to multiply food for the many as he's done. But the distinction is these are Gentiles. This isn't just God's people, God's children. This is reaching out to others to model for his disciples the lesson of the teaching and to prepare them for the commission that he was going to give them when he sends them out to make disciples of all nations and to be his witnesses, not just in Jerusalem and Judea, but to Samaria and the outermost parts of the earth. And so to impress this upon them, he takes them on a field trip. And to understand the text, we need to understand first its geography. So I think we have a map that is only vaguely visible, but that's okay. <laughs> Jesus is going to go north from Galilee into Gentile territory. We're first going to go into the region of Tyre, this ancient city of the Phoenicians. Then he's going to go 22 miles further north to the city of Sidon. And then he's going to loop around east and then go south into an area known as Decapolis, which is a region of 10 cities established back by Alexander the Great. And what all of them have in common is, first of all, this is Gentile territory. No mistake about it. And more than that, these are Gentile territories that have been historically hostile to Israel. Tyre and Sidon are condemned by no less than five prophetic books of the Old Testament, that God is going to judge them for the way that they mistreated his people. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus says of the Tyronians, the people of Tyre, they are the worst enemies we have. And this is writing in the first and second centuries around this time. The capitalist was the place of the Moabites and the Ammonites that were constant enemies of the people of Israel. So Jesus is going to take them not just simply into Gentile territory, but into Gentile territory associated with people that have been hostile to Israel and still were to this day. So imagine a respected rabbi in Jerusalem, a leader among the Hasidic zealot Jews, taking his disciples onto a mission of mercy to Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan to go bring uh, merciful aid and compassionate relief to those associated with Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, and other terrorist groups. That's what's going on here. So with that in mind, let's journey with Jesus northward. Beginning of verse 24, it says that Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. So Jesus goes north, not to the city of Tyre, but to its region. He enters into a home, but he's recognized because Jesus' reputation has gone beyond the borders of Israel. In fact, Mark chapter 3 says that people had come to him from beyond the Jordan and from the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him because they had heard of all the great things he had done. So people had come from this region, had seen Jesus, seen the miracles, heard his teaching, went back. He was famous. He's recognized. And so he receives an uninvited guest. But Mark goes out of his way to emphasize that she had no right to expect a warm welcome. First of all, because it was a woman. And women didn't approach rabbis. You didn't come in contact with ascetic, or, or with, uh, ascetic Jews. And so her gender would have been a mark against her. She was a mother, and there's no mention of a man, so presumably a single mom. We don't know why. 
But normally the father would have come to intercede on his child's behalf, but she's on her own for whatever reason that would have raised suspicions about her character perhaps, as with the fact that she had a daughter with an unclean spirit. What did you do to cause your daughter to be demonized? And it would have made her unclean and again unacceptable to a Jewish holy man. And then Mark, lest we miss the point, says that this woman, again, was a Gentile. Someone that Jewish holy men didn't have dealings with. And racially, she was a Phoenician of Syria. So Phoenicia was an ancient people that was associated with Carthage in North Africa and then also Tyre in what today would be the Levant. And she didn't come from North Africa. She came from this part north of Palestine. But in every way, this woman was disqualified to come and expect a favorable hearing from a Jewish rabbi. But she comes because she's desperate. And coming, she keeps asking him repeatedly to cast the demon out of her daughter. So this woman has a child with a wicked spirit tormenting her. Now, Matthew's memory of this episode is more vivid. He says that she cried out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, for my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. So this wasn't just something that episodically with a full moon, her, her, full moon, her behavior was awkward. Or that now and again there seemed to be concerning signs that something was going on with her spiritual estate. When we see those who are demon-possessed, they are tormented because the devil is a tormentor. Uh, we see children being cast down into spasms, into flames. We see people maimed. We see people in great pain because that's what the devil wants to do to people. And if you've ever been under any delusions that it's good to make a deal with the devil or have a fiddle playing contest with the devil or have anything at all, he only comes to steal and kill and destroy. And we see that manifested. And this woman has no alternative but to go to the Jewish man. Maybe he can do something. And she kept asking him. And his response is puzzling and even a little bit troublesome. <laughs> he said to her, let the children be satisfied first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, the Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs. But this isn't as offensive as all that. Jesus uses not a word for a mongrel or a cur that would have been a danger outside, but to a house dog, because unlike the Jews, the Greeks would have kept pets. And then he uses what's called the diminutive. So not a dog, but a doggy. Not a pup, but a puppy. Now, I don't see Don Davis here, but I was going to use his two little dogs as an illustration of these were house companions. And the idea doesn't have so much to do with the dogs are getting food unwelcome, but they get it later. There's an order of priority. There's a sequence. You serve the children first, and then you give the leftovers to the pet. And in the Old Testament, time and again, we see that God did indeed plan to bless all the nations that all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve would have a salvation offered to them through the seed of Eve. God gave a blessing and a covenant to Abraham so that through him all the nations would be blessed. We see this running theme that God intends his mercies to extend to every nation, tribe, and tongue, but only through Abraham, through Israel, through the son of Abraham, through Israel's Messiah, because there was a priority, which is why in the book of Romans and elsewhere, Paul says that the gospel went to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So there was a priority, a sequence. But the woman isn't rebuffed because Jesus wasn't trying to rebuff her. 
He's drawing out from her a response to be a model. And we're going to see a couple of unique things about her. First, in her response, it says, Yes, Lord. And she's the only person in the Gospel of Mark to call Jesus Lord. Now, for her, it's just a term of respect. Sir, Master. But to Mark's readers, it hinted at something more. And she's the only one to best Jesus in a verbal argument. Normally, Jesus is confronted and he asks a question and that shuts him up and sends him away. Or they confront Jesus and he replies, this is the first one that he's going to go, uh-huh, you're right, and I'm going to give you what you want. And what she responds is, yes, Lord. She agrees. There is a priority. There is a sequence. But even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. They don't have to wait for the leftovers. It's okay for, even though now you've come as the Messiah to Israel, would you give a needy Gentile a crumb of grace? Would you give me a piece of mercy? And in Matthew it says, and because of her great faith, because she had some sense of who he was, of what he could do, because she responded in this way, Mark just simply says, because of this answer, Jesus said, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. Not, I'll go with you and cast the demon out. He does it as a di at a distance because he has that authority. Now, he does it instantaneously. It's done. It's not he will be gone by the time you get home. Right now the demon's gone because he has that authority. And then we get the confirmation of the miracle. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon having left. Now, this was a woman who had no right to expect grace and mercy from a Jewish rabbi. She was a woman. She was a Gentile woman. She was a Syrophoenician. She was a single mom. She had a demonized daughter. But the love of God transcends all those boundaries. And his followers have always gone to those that others have shunned. Like when Father Damien in Hawaii asked permission to go among the lepers colony on the Molokai coast and brought the gospel to them, even though he contracted and died of leprosy. And it was Mother Teresa who was willing to go to the Calcutta slums, to the poorest to the poor that everyone else wanted to avoid because she saw in them Christ in his distressing disguise. And if Christ could go from heaven to earth, she could go from a private Indian school teaching geography, which is where she started, to live among the poorest of the poor in the slums of Calcutta. That's why St. Francis reached out and embraced a leper and then began to take care of the lepers and the sick and the poor and sparked a revival in the Middle Ages because he would love that everyone else found unlovely and unlovable. And he did that. They all did that on the example and the model of Christ and the expansiveness and the inclusiveness of his love that transcends all the boundaries that we form between one another. We find this reinforced in another episode beginning in verse 31. Jesus went from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. Now, you don't go through Sidon from Tyre to get to Galilee because it's 22 miles further north. So he goes north, then he goes east, then he goes south in this horseshoe-shaped pattern. may have been up to 120 miles for the field trip, for the excursion, because he had other business to enact. He had other encounters to have. He had other conversations, not all of which are included in the Gospels. And it's a good reminder of something that John tells us explicitly in the fourth Gospel. He says in chapter 21 that there are also many other things which Jesus did, which they, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that could be written. 
He says in chapter 20, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. The gospel accounts are not exhaustive. They're just selected examples of the glorious identity of Christ and the wondrous gospel that He came to preach and the salvation that He offers so that we would believe that He is indeed the Son of God, that He is indeed the Messiah, that He is indeed the Savior, so that we would repent of our sins, place our faith in Him, and be born again and be adopted into the family of God. And so Jesus had other encounters in Gentile lands that we're just not told of. But we are told that when He came to Decapolis, that they brought to Him one who was deaf, and he spoke with difficulty. And they implored him to lay his hand on him. Now Jesus had been to Decapolis once before when he came across the sea, having calmed the storm. And you remember a man rushed him who had been living in the tombs? And he had a legion of demons within him that Jesus cast out. And the people begged him to leave because he was bad for business. But now they're ready to receive him. Now that he's back, now that he gives them a second chance... They, and we don't know if it's friends, family, whomever, bring this man who couldn't communicate his need to Christ and they begged him to lay his hands on him, believing that he could heal them. And Jesus took the person aside. This would be a private, not a public miracle. And he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. That sounds uh, way inappropriate for us. But at the time, we have other accounts of a person's spittle being associated with the means of conveying their power or miraculous ability. Uh, not just in Jewish communities, but two Roman historians, Tacitus and Suetonius, both recount a blind person coming to the emperor Vespasian, begging for him to spit on him that his eyes might be healed. And so what's odd for us was more usual at the time, and it was associated with a way of conveying power. And Jesus actually uses spittle to heal two other blind men on two different occasions. One by applying the moisture directly to the eyes, one by moisturing uh, mud or clay that he applies to the eyes. So it sounds odd to us it would have been expected back then perhaps. And having touched his ears, touched his tongue, he looked up to heaven in a posture of prayer like he did when he multiplied the bread, like he did when he summoned Lazarus from the tomb. And with a deep sigh, an emotional, earnest call to God. He gave the authoritative command, Ephatha. Unless we think that this is some magical incantation or word of power, he translates it for us. This is the Aramaic word meaning be opened. Literally, be loosed. Let the tongue that was tied be loosed. Let the ears that were shut be loosed. And let this man that was bound in various ways be loosed from his burdens and free to interact and relate and to, to have a better life. And Jesus does this with a word. And I think sometimes we, we stop too short in the miraculous accounts, but it's worth pausing to think about the transformations that resulted from this. And of a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years and was therefore unable to come to synagogue was therefore considered unclean, was therefore unable to do these things as part of a Jew or Jewish religious community, and Jesus heals her, and it changed her life. And the blind men and the lame and the cripples, and it changes their life. 
And a worthwhile meditation, one quiet time, is just to think of these people who come to him and he heals them. And what would life have been like them going back to be able to talk to a family member for the first time? To be able to hear people for the first time. Uh, now sometimes you'll see these video clips of people who for the first time see color or the first time hear sound and they're heartbreaking. It's just now a, a sense that everyone else that enjoyed that was denied me, I now experience and it changes my life because Jesus is in the business of changing lives. And immediately the man's ears were opened. The impediment of his tongue was removed and he began speaking plainly for the first time. And Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. The more he became known as a miracle worker and the more the crowds came, the harder it was for him to teach the gospel and to preach and to teach and to accomplish his mission. And also when he was on the other side of the Jordan, more likely to raise the attention of civic officials who might want to quench this prophet before he raised a rabble against them. They were utterly astonished saying, he has done all things well. He can make even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now, this is especially significant, this healing of deafness and muteness of the Gentiles, because this is prophesied in the Old Testament. In other words, this scene is intended to signify more than just taking it face value. When Arthur goes to pull the sword from the stone, it's not just, wow, this is a really strong guy. It's, this is the prophesied king who has Excalibur. We're going to make him the head of Camelot. And so likewise, some of these events are cueing us as to who Jesus is. So turn, if you would, or listen to Isaiah chapter 35. And I want to read the account in its entirety. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and a shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So after several chapters of pronouncing judgment on the Gentile nations, Isaiah 35 anticipates the day when God sends the Messiah to restore and renew the land. Not just Jewish land, but Lebanon. Gentile land. And encourage and exhausted and strengthen the feeble. So say to those who are anxious, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. And the eyes of the blind will be open. And the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And the lame will leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness. And the streams in the Arabah. This is the basis of that beautiful stanza that we sang in the opening thing. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ, ye blind, behold, your Savior come and leap ye lame for joy. That there's coming a time of restoration. There's coming a time of renewal. That mom is going to be able to be with us because she won't be bedridden all the time. And Mary's not going to hurt when the weather changes. And there's not going to be any more dialysis. And there's not going to be any more. I can look at so many and my heart goes out to each one. But it's not always going to be that way. It was never intended to be that way. But when we rebelled against God 
and vandalized his creation and ruined what he had wrought, we brought this on ourselves. But in his mercy, he sent his son to redeem so that one day he can restore. And in that restore, there's going to be renewal. And that's going to be glorious and wondrous. And this is what this is anticipating. This is what this is a foretaste of. This is the indication of this is the one who's going to be able to do that someday. So receive him now. And embrace him now. Because as that chapter ends, he's going to form a highway, a roadway called the Highway of Holiness. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. With it. With everlasting joy upon their heads, they will find gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. In the words of Revelation, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For all of those former things will pass away forever and ever. Then, verse 1 of chapter 8, we get a third episode. <clears throat> In those days... And in those regions, there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. And Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for these Gentiles, because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Uh, before, they had driven them away. They couldn't get rid of them fast enough. Now they're lingering for three days, and they've grown hungry, and Jesus is compassionate and concerned. Because if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them, and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. And they served them to the people. They had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate, and they were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets. It's the same word used of the basket that Paul hid in as he was smuggled out of the city of Damascus. Um, and about 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. Even the crumbs from the Messiah's table were enough to leave the multitude of Gentiles satisfied. And he entered a boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha on the other end of the Sea of Galilee. Now we're intended to read these three episodes together. These three incidents and events are all part of Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles. Following after his teaching on cleanliness and uncleanliness and his declaring all foods clean because he is modeling for the disciples and for us his intention for the gospel invitation to go to all peoples to break down all barriers and to seek out those that others shun. And we know this because this is exactly the way the Bible interprets the event when we see a similar episode with Peter in Joppa in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 begins with a centurion named Cornelius who has a vision of God that he's to send his servants to go to a man named Peter. And Peter is up on the roof and praying, and while he prays, he has a vision of 
a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I think of Everett when I read that verse. It's a hunter verse. Kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Peter knew as a good Jew, I can't eat swine. I can't eat crabs. I can't do the crawfish. But a voice came a second time correcting him. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Because this was so unfathomable. Because this was so against what he had been trained and entrenched to believe. Three times this happens. And after the third time, a knock comes on the door. And it's a group of Gentiles asking Peter to come and visit with their master, the centurion. So Peter does. And the account picks up in verse 28. Having heard the account from Cornelius of his vision, Peter says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. What did Jesus do in Mark? He visited Gentiles and associated with them. And yet God has shown me that I should not call not just any food, but what? Any man clean or unclean. That's the point. That's the meaning. That's the significance. That's the lesson. All these people that we call clean and unclean, acceptable, unacceptable, God doesn't want us to make those distinctions in denominations anymore because He broke down all those barriers. And Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality between Jews and Gentiles. But in every nation, the person who fears Him and does what is right to welcome Him. And He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as a judge of the living and the dead. And of Him all the prophets bear witness that through His name, not just every child of Abraham, not just every Jew, every Hebrew, but... Everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sin. Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old, felon and equal scout, rich or poor, bright or dim, educated or uneducated, all of those barriers are broken down because the gospel invitation is available to all because God's love embraces all and Jesus desires to include all in His kingdom when He comes to all who will receive Him. And for us not to live this out, for us not to manifest this, is hypocrisy that obscures the Gospel. Uh, Jesus taught Peter this. Then Jesus took Peter on a journey to show him this. Then He gave him a vision to experience this. And you know what Peter does by the time we get to Galatians chapter 2? He's eating with the Gentiles until a group of Jews comes from Jerusalem and then he leaves the Gentile table and eats only among the Jews. And Paul rebukes him publicly. Paul says in Galatians 2, But when Cephas, that's the Aramaic name of Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when the Jews from Jerusalem sent by James came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof fearing the party of the circumcision. I wonder what the Jews will think about me if I eat with the Gentiles. And when Peter sinned, what did the rest of the Jews do? They joined him in his hypocrisy. And not just the new believers, this is heartbreaking, 
Even Barnabas, even Barnabas was infected with his hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, because the inclusiveness of the gospel is part of the truth of the gospel. The transcending of all the barriers that we create and all the bigotries and the biases that we instill and act upon, that when we give in to those, we obscure the gospel because the gospel breaks down all those barriers. Everyone is welcome at the Lord's table. I said to Cephas, in the presence of everybody, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it you compel the Jews to live like Jews? Because we're justified by faith, not by the works of the law. Every human being is a sinner separated from God, and we all get right with God the same way. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, through which we are declared righteous because of Christ's righteousness, not ours. We're all in the same boat, and we only get fixed the same way. And so we have to view each other as equals at the foot of the cross as one in Christ, and to offer that gospel to anyone and to everyone. Because as Paul says, and actually this is Galatians 3, not 2, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, so that now in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's descendants, because Abraham was the father of faith, and we're only saved by faith. Heirs, according to the promise, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, who were also promised grace through the son of Abram, through the son of David, through the promised Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. Um, especially today, we're taught to draw immediate identifiers on people. And so, for example... When we see a male or a female, I'm waiting on the pictures to catch up to, <clears throat> I'm sorry, a Jew or a Gentile, in a Jewish mind frame, we immediately see good and bad. But Christ took the journey into Gentile territory to show that there is no unclean race in God's eyes. He's removed that distinction with the gospel. Likewise, we tend to see male and female but they're both made in the image of God because man and woman, he made them in his image. We tend to differentiate between those who are <laughs> groomed and respectable and know how to behave versus the young uncouth who not only should be seen, not heard, but ideally not seen, <laughs> right? And there are biases both against the young and the old. When we see someone that is happy, or healthy rather, and thanks to Richard for letting us use one of his training photos. Uh, we are drawn when we see someone who has a challenge, we tend to pull away. But God knit all of them in their mother's wombs. God made each as he intended them to be. Likewise, when Christ fed the 5,000, those who knew how to worship God, we feel more comfortable with certain concert crowds and large groups than others. And we could have picked more rowdy and raucous concert photos than this to indicate the fact that we immediately make an evaluation based on a grouping that we associate them with. For example, by race, but Christ died 
to bring people from every nation, tribe, and tongue into his kingdom. We tend to send people as either American or foreigner. But the reality is all Christians are citizens in God's kingdom. We tend to identify and judge people based on political affiliation. But in Christ, we're all subjects of the same king. We're all invited to worship the same Lord. There's generational divides, either towards the young millennials or the crotchety old folks. And we immediately make evaluations. Some of them are true, especially for the aged, right? When we see people who are like us and respectable, people who can hold down a job and pay taxes, we feel more comfortable with someone who's on the down and out and needing help. There's many other distinctions artificial that we create and some people take way seriously. Uh, I had a friend that I went to seminary with who grew up in Tennessee and he said, my earliest memory is of my family taking me to the highway when the Kentucky people, no, I'm sorry, he's from Kentucky. And his earliest memory was his grandparents and father and uncles taking him to a roadside when the uh, Tennesseans were coming in for a rival match so that they could greet them all by giving them the middle finger. And that was his first memory as a child, was being taught to hate people from Tennessee. We judge people based on their religiosity and knowing that there's only one true God and only one gospel and only one right religion doesn't give us the right to hate, despise, or shun those who worship differently because we all did at one point, right? Now a hot issue is sexual orientation or identification. But even though we love homosexuals too much to embrace homosexuality, we don't get to shun them and mistreat them. Even though we feel it is unloving for someone to allow medical procedures to be done to a child because of their confusion over a gender identity, that doesn't mean that we get to be dismissive or ugly or hateful towards them. Our embracing of a biblical sexuality is an expression of love, not of hate. And we need to remember that. Whatever the category, we view people in various ways that we have created by gender, by race, by age, by socioeconomic background, by country of origin, by citizen, non-citizen. And we don't just notice these aspects of our identity because you can't help noticing in them, but we judge and evaluate. And if you're like me, I embrace you. And if you're different than me, I exclude you. If you agree with me, I include you. And if you disagree with me, I push you away. And as Christians, we don't get to do that because of the expansive, inclusive love of God, we love everybody. We love all of our neighbors as ourselves. We even love our enemies, and we will not return evil for evil, but we will be good even to those who harm us. Because the primary categories that God gives us is if they are a human being, then they are made in God's image and they are to be treated with dignity and respect. And if they are in Christ, then they are your brother and sister in Christ. And your heavenly Father expects you to embrace them and welcome them and love them, no matter who they are or what they look like. Because this is our gospel. So consider what a glorious God we worship, who creates such a wide variety of distinctions and variations, 
that he doesn't make two snowflakes alike, two fingerprints alike, or two people alike. We're all distinct, but we're all made in God's image. And God loves everyone because he lets his son and his reign fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And we are to be equally unconditional in our love of all people. What a savior we serve who was willing to go into Gentile territories that would be hostile to him to know that he would be shunned upon his return because this was unacceptable by any good Jew standards. But Jesus came to seek and save the lost. The good shepherd came to go and find his lost sheep. And not just to seek and to find, but to die for them. Because Revelation 5 says it is by his blood that he purchased people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. If he loves them that much, then we should too. What a gospel. That no matter who we are, that we can come and enter into an intimate relationship with God through Jesus. And there's not chosen races anymore. There's not certain genders that are secondary citizens. There's not, if you don't have this IQ level or this education level or this income level, then you're pushed to the margins. There is no marginalization in God's kingdom. There is no disenfranchising in God's kingdom. And so whoever you are, if you don't know Christ, would you come? Because there is no aspect of who you are that keeps you from coming. There's nothing you've done. There's nothing in your background. There's nothing in your family, nothing in your heritage that keeps you from God because Christ died to adopt you, to bring you into the family. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're not going to get a more gracious gospel than this. And you have to do nothing to earn it, nothing to merit it. You can't. You just have to ask for it and receive it. What a challenge. Because none of us are this loving. And all of us are bigoted and biased. Sexism, sexism isn't particular to males. Prejudice isn't peculiar to Americans. Racism isn't the sole sin of white people. Every human being discriminates against those that differ from them. It's just a universal truth. It's in every, every culture, every uh, country, every nation, because it's in every person. Because we're all sinners. And so this is something that each of us has to address because we all have biases and bigotries that we need to remove. But finally, what an opportunity that we have to respond to this, to repent of our sin, to be more like Christ, and to love one another the way that God wants us to, which is as brothers and sisters in Christ, and to be the most loving place in town that anybody from any walk of life can walk in these doors and feel welcome, that anybody from any background can join us at a fellowship brunch and be embraced, that anybody who accepts Christ will be accepted into this community as a child of God to spend eternity together. What an opportunity we have to obey our God, to reflect our Savior, to truly indicate what the gospel was intended to do to enjoy this life of love together, to invite others into it until the Prince of Love comes and we live in His beautiful, loving presence forever and ever because of the expansive, inclusive love of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we do confess that we're not like this. Uh, we look at people and we immediately observe distinctions and we make value judgments. We immediately 
distinguish and separate those that we're attracted to and those that we're repelled by, of those that we want to spend time with and those that we want to avoid, of those that we would include and those that we would reject. And yet this text reminds us that we can't be like that. That that's not acceptable for your children in your church to live that way. And without any compromise of truth, without any endorsing of sin, we can love everyone. And out of that love, lead them to the truth to deal with their sin as we're trying to deal with our sin so that we can all enjoy the full and abundant life that you intend for us. Because we thrive and societies prosper when we obey your word and your will for our life. So Father, would you help us in this? Would you change us in this? And with the love of this community, invite others to join it until your son returns for us someday. And we'll ask this in his name. Amen. Would those of you helping with communion please come forward? God invites everyone to join his family. But this meal, this communion, is only for those who have accepted that invitation. If you are a son or daughter of God, because you have placed your faith in salvation through Jesus Christ, then you're invited to join with us in this. If you're not, you can do so in an instant. And you can right now in the quiet of your heart say, God, I'm a sinner. Jesus, save me. And you can join the family meal for the first time. If you're not ready to make that decision, we would just ask that the elements pass and uh, consider perhaps enjoying it on another occasion. So we will pass the bread, uh, then we will partake together as a symbol of this is a community meal, and then we'll do the same with the cup. But first, would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for the gospel that is available for all, for any. It was available for even us. <laughs> And despite our sins and despite our shortcomings, despite our lack of righteousness or any hope of it, Christ accomplished everything we needed. He was obedient where we were not. He paid the penalty for our disobedience. And now we are a family of yours because of him, not ourselves. So thank you for this reminder of the inclusiveness of the gospel and also of its costliness that he had to die that we might live, that he had to be forsaken that we might be included. So let us remember him and rededicate ourselves to him as we celebrate this meal that he established. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>